When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Sess Busby. I'm Adam Bob. Thanks for joining us. And if it's your first time listening, Adam and I are editors who've probably interviewed thousands of people between us. Thousands of people. Now, on First Act, we lift the lid on the origin stories of Australia's most fascinating movers and shakers in business and life. We hope you come away from these candid conversations with a unique insight into where great ideas come from and the often bumpy roads we take to get there. Let's meet today's guest. Sonia Makic. Now, Sonia is the co-founder of Three Phase Marketing, a $25 million business that she's built from the ground up. She's passionate about tech and entrepreneurship and has helped thousands of businesses, big and small, harness marketing opportunities to support their growth. She's consistently recognised as one of Australia's most inspiring entrepreneurs and she's made it into the AFR's Fast 100 list and she's also been a regular in the Australian Business News Top 100 Entrepreneurs since 2019. And I fully expect she'll be on that list again this year. So welcome, Sonia. Thank you so much for having me here today. Sonia, we are very excited to chat with you today. Uh, We always start our first act with uh, first act icebreaker. So your icebreaker today is what's the best or worst online shopping experience you've ever had? I would say probably the best online shopping experience I've ever had. This is a free plug. I might reach out to these guys a little bit later, but there is a personalised <laughs> lunchbox company called Tiny Me. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but there was one morning I was getting this kids' school lunches ready and couldn't find a lunchbox, couldn't find a drink bottle, labels were missing. So I grabbed my phone quickly ordered a whole new set of lunchbox, school bag, drink bottle for my children, all personalised on my mobile phone using Apple Pay. And I think I did the order in a record of, you know, three seconds flat. Like it was just so seamless and quick. And within five business days, I had all these, um, you know, personalised products delivered to my front door. And I remember thinking to myself, this this platform has been built by a parent for parents, surely. Um, just the speed of the site was incredible um, and the product itself was quite amazing and the kids were blown away. So that was my most recent best e-commerce experience. Well, well technology can really like take those friction points out of our lives, right? Like that's that's so important. And I know that lunchbox pain. I've got two kids and my God, how often do they lose their lunchboxes and their drink bottles? And yesterday I had a Baby Yoda drink bottle fiasco because <laughs> she dropped her bottle and the bottle cracked and then there were tears. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's all oh, tragedy it. in the morning sometimes. Exactly. And it's, um, you know, I think for these guys, they've really capitalised off that pain point for parents. They understand, you know, labels peel off. Um, things really come home. You know, there's no boomerang when it comes to drink bottles and lunchboxes, but they've just really nailed it. So, yeah. 
big, big plug to those guys. That's a good one. I'm going to have a look for them later. <laughs> now, let's dig into your backstory. So your parents immigrated from Serbia in the 80s when you were just a baby. I mean, they were looking for a better life. Serbia was going through quite a bit of conflict at the time. But I think the reality for immigrants can be very different from the idyllic gauzy lifestyle that they might have pictured. Um, so what was life like for you in those early years when you first came to Australia? What are your memories? So I just remember that my parents really struggled to integrate into the local community. I think for them, I I, I visualised doing this myself. You know, mum and dad were in their late 20s with two small children in tow and came into a country where they didn't know the language, they had no formal qualifications or education. So as a result, they um, were really isolated. They only socialised and interacted with people within the Serbian community um, and um, they really struggled to find work, make friends um, and build an outside community group from our Serbian culture. So I do recall mum and dad um, really struggling with that emotionally um, and, of course, financially as a result of the fact that they had no formal qualifications and couldn't speak the language. Mm. So obviously they couldn't speak the language, which meant you didn't speak the language. So um, as a kid, how was that when you started school? Did did it really make you feel different to the other children because your English wasn't that great? How do you think it impacted you? Definitely. It was, and again, it was the 80s and, um, you know, the the diversification just wasn't there. So I was this, you know, little European kid with a funny name. My actual real name is Sanya. S-A-N-J-A. And I remember my first day of prep, the primary school teacher wrote my name on the board and said, okay, well, this is a difficult name to remember. So we're going to change your name to Sonia and we're (gasps) going to spell it with an I. I swear to you, we're going to spell it with an I and everyone's going to call you Sonia. And that's how Sonia, that's how the name originated from this you know, prep experience where the teacher had decided that Sonia was too difficult for the other students to remember. (laughs) And so could you just imagine doing that in our, you know, in this time and in this age, um, changing someone's name to make it more convenient for everybody else? So, yeah, that that was just one, um, I suppose, one major experience that really highlighted the fact that, you know, we just weren't open-minded then and we didn't have the infrastructure that we have today to make sure that, you know, there is a seamless integration for immigrants and for people that come from smaller minority groups. It's just, it just wasn't there in the 80s. That is just so terrible. It's really appalling. And obviously your parents didn't feel like they had um, the ability to speak up about it. They didn't, you know, and they didn't want to cause trouble and they wanted to do the right thing. And I think for my parents, their intention was always to do the right thing. So, you know, they, they were just taking the lead by the school and they went along with it. I, I can totally relate to that. I come from a migrant family and my parents are very much of that kind of, um, you know, put your head down, just work hard, be quiet, you know, just get on with it and like don't don't cause a fuss is was sort of the, exactly. the idea. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So money was tight when you were growing up um, as it is with a lot of migrant families. So you've your parents had to do many different jobs to make ends meet. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so mum and dad struggled, you know. I watched them fight about money most of my childhood. They lived from paycheck to paycheck. They were renting for quite a few years. We we first started our journey here in Australia in a small one-bedroom unit where we all shared a room. Um, And I just noticed, I just observed the constant struggle around the conversation when it came to money. And, you know, they were factory workers, another another thing that I suppose motivated me to um, have a completely different experience now as an adult is that they worked on these factory floors that had, you know, a clock-on, clock-off system. So you physically have to be there at 7am, you use your clock-on card and you have to leave at 5pm and you clock off with the same card. So they had no workplace flexibility whatsoever and they missed out on so many of those critical um, moments for me and my brother growing up through primary school, things like sporting events and um, concerts and, you know, some of those, you know, Mother's Day stalls and some of those things that you remember as a kid, you know, seeing your parents at school that stay with you for life. You know, we were always those kids that never had our parents attending any of those important important milestones. Um, So yes, there was the financial battle, but it was also, you know, the lack of physical presence because in order to be able to provide for their their kids and for their family, they were um, bound to this factory floor of working 10, 12-hour shifts in order to be able to make ends meet. That must have an enormous impact on you and your kind of... um the way that you view money and the way that you view work and um, and that drive in you. So you did something when you were 12, you started your own business. Mm. Now, a lot of other 12-year-olds, I mean, nowadays it's probably just like video games and whatever, um, or mobile phone games, really, I should say. That's just, I feel so old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just a whole lot of that stuff, whatever it was. I just think back to like my, I was 12 in the late 90s, you know, it was, I was not starting my own business. Tell me about yours, uh, about what it was and how that worked. Yeah, yeah. Mum and I laugh about this now because I used to actually pick all the rose petals off her rose, out of her rose bushes, and then I would get some essential oil, I would dry them out on the back patio, and I would make pot puree. And I put them into, I swear that mum used to get so cross at me because obviously all of her roses were destroyed, but I used to put them into these little bags and then put ribbon around them and I drew logos and I'd put some branding on them. I mean, nowadays you could probably almost call them, you know, organic handcrafted, couldn't you? Uh, (laughs) I would would make these little little bags of pot puree and then go door knocking and essentially sell them to everyone up and down the street. I remember this one guy opened up his front door and and I did the whole sales pitch and he said, I actually don't have a sense of smell. This is his first answer. And and I said to him, but what about people that visit your house? Did they, can they smell when they walk through the front door? (laughs) And I look back now and think, oh, my goodness, like, A, how insensitive, and B, I just had this persistence that, I just was relentless in my drive, even back then. You know, I was that kid that drove my parents crazy when something entered my mind and I wanted it. I I just had so much tenacity and resolve that I would not stop until I got it. Um, And this little business venture I started when I was 12, like I literally turned everyone into a customer. Like it didn't matter if you couldn't even experience the product. I wanted you to buy it, you know. (laughs) Did you have a name for it or was it just, you know, just your door-to-door you're like, hey, I've got this, you know, this potpourri product. Yeah, I just said, um, 
I'm, I'm selling crafty things today and I used to just call it my craft, like my, I didn't per se have a brand name, but um yeah, my crafty products is what I used to call it. Mum would go, oh, my God, what are you getting into now? What are you creating now? The sweet um, and- smell of success, Mum. That's what I created. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh. mm. We spoke a little bit about your um, difficulties at school, like uh, socially and trying to fit in and feeling like you were the different kid. But academically, you also kind of struggled quite a bit there as well, so much so that you decided to leave school before you finished year 12, like right at the very beginning yeah, of year 12. So correct. how did your parents react to that? Because there's often a thing with immigrants or with parents in general where they want their kids to have something better than them. So I imagine finishing school was probably something that was important to your parents. Why did you do it? And yeah. What, what was the impetus? Look, my parents were mortified. Um, and it was consistent with the fact that I was always definitely the black sheep in the family. I, you know, as I, as I mentioned, you know, for me, when I had an idea and I had a passion for something, nothing would stand in my way. And I really battled at school and mum and dad knew that particularly in the teenage years, I just couldn't focus. You know, for me, I was disengaged. I felt like I was wasting my time apart from some probably two or three subjects, which were English, I loved English, PE and home economics. <laughs> anything that anything that got me out of a textbook I was particularly fond of. So, you know, mum and dad, yeah, they were mortified, but I think they weren't surprised. They could see that I was struggling. My grades were pretty good right up until probably about year nine where I just knew it wasn't for me and I was forcing myself to do something that I didn't enjoy. And it's like anything in life, you know, you always you do well at things that you're passionate about. Where I did really well at school was the socialisation aspect of going to school. I was even back then organising gatherings and uh, I was friends with everybody and I was very strong at communicating, but there was nothing in the regular school system that would support that. So when I came home and told my parents I was leaving, my mum cried. Um, My dad didn't speak to me for a couple of days and they were mortified. But then I think in their heart, they knew that I would always be okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, for me, I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm extremely resourceful. So, um, I'm sort of that kid that always took care of herself. So, I think in their heart, they knew things would work out, but most definitely, they weren't very supportive of my decision. So, was there a game plan? Absolutely not. Oh. Um, I literally just left and then built my resume. Um, My first job was at Coles. I worked in the supermarket when I was 14 and in nine months I walked up to the service desk and said, you know, I'm here to apply for a job. So I had some work experience and I just built a resume and um, I got my first job at an appliance company. These guys started importing appliances from Italy and they had no marketing collateral. They had no marketing team. They, you know, were really early in their entrepreneurial journey. And it was the best experience I'd ever had because I had um, firsthand seen what was involved in launching a brand. Um, I was part of that creative process. I actually built their website. Like I used some, I, I don't even think it was Wix. I can't even remember back in the day. This is, you know, when I was 
um, 18 years old using, I downloaded some software, I designed some um, brochures for them and, you know, we had our first sale event and I literally planned this whole entire campaign and they ended up selling $3 million worth of products in one weekend. This is my first job. And I remember my boss saying to me, what the hell did you do? Like, how did we get this result? Uh, so I'd found my calling. Like that that first job allowed me to work out what it was that I wanted to do with my career that I wasn't getting from school. So planned this marketing strategy for this small business. What was it about marketing that you think captured your imagination? Yeah, we, like you, you said that you kind of found it through working for them, but... Like was it was it the the thing that made you happy about marketing? What what do you think that was? I I think it's the creative process first and foremost. You know, if I talk about the things that I enjoyed doing as a kid, I loved drawing. I was always very creative, and I loved design. So that's the first part of it. But I I love people. So I love understanding the psychology of why people buy. I love understanding what motivates people to choose a product over, you know, when they have a choice over a range of competitors. So I think when I, you know, when I look back at, you know, I suppose as as the longer you live, the more you understand what it is that makes you tick. But I think it's those two aspects. It's the creative process of building campaigns, designing brands, and then it's the human element of it that I love the most as well. So understanding um, when I when I start working on a project with a client or when I'm mentoring my team, I always revert back to the number one thing that doesn't change in marketing and business, and that is people's psychology. You know, what is it that motivates a person to buy or to create that loyalty or that relationship with a business or a brand? So how do you think you had such an insight into that at such a young age? I think it's just really intuitive. It's just it was a natural curiosity for me and I think it's just the way that I'm hardwired is is the social aspect and my love for people and 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 connecting and the creative side. I think that you know so many of us are here we we've all got our own journey I suppose and so many of us are fortunate enough to understand what that is early on. Um, so yeah, it's very much innate for me. So you did this campaign for these, these guys, that first business, you, you saw them raking in the cash, $3 million worth of sales. Did that kind of get you thinking, "Mm, I'm pretty good at this and maybe I should start out on my own? Like, was that kind of in a way, the impetus to get you out and start three phase marketing? It, It was, it was part of it. It was after that role, I then went on and did it for other businesses. So I started noticing a trend probably when I hit my 30s where I was coming into organisations, I was instinctively seeing what the gaps were and what was missing and then I would, you know, implement the changes that needed to happen and I would start to see a sales result. So I then went on and did that for a couple of other organisations of course, I started to see that it was very clear what it was that I was interested in. It's There was a label finally. It's called marketing. It's called sales. It's called psychology. So I started reading and learning and learning. And, like, I, I, you know, even though I don't have a formal qualification, I'm an avid learner. Like, I'm constantly reading and listening to podcasts and 
really sharpening my saw. So I, finally I was able to put a label on it when I got into my 30s and went, well, I'm a, I'm a marketing expert. I'm a marketing strategist. That's what I am. And I could start to see the sales result that it was generating. I basically generated millions of dollars for all of my employers. And every single time I left a job and every single time I resigned, they would cry. I swear to you, like my employer <laughs> would be like, but, but you made us all this money and where are you going? And please don't leave. And, you know, they'd offer me more money and um, a promotion. And But I knew that I was done. Once I'd conquered that challenge, I was moving on to the next thing. So then when I got into my 30s, I thought, you know what, it's time. I need to do this for myself. I know what's involved. I know how to create this. I'm going to take the leap and go off and do it for myself. I need to do this for my children. I want to show them that anything is possible. And I wanted to make my parents proud as well. You know, they still were confused about what I do in my 30s, you know, like, (laughs) what do you mean you go and you know, make money for all these people. You know, they just couldn't understand it. But you never even finished school. You know, they, they still say this to me to this day. You know, don't tell people that you never finished school. Like, <laughs> uh oh, it's Daddy, out, Mum and Dad. It's out there. I know. But Daddy, I'm making millions and millions of dollars for all these companies. But you know, they're still, you know, um, yeah, I, I think for them, they still want to follow the rules and don't step out of the boundaries and do what society tells you to do. And mum and dad are still so compliant. They they don't quite grasp the fact that I'm able to do this without a formal qualification. Mm-hmm. We'll be back with more from Sonia and her journey into building three-phase marketing after this short break. We're back with Sonia to chat a little bit more about her journey. And what I would like to dig into a bit more is that genesis of three-phase marketing. Like you left a secure job to bootstrap the business. You did that with a friend, I believe. But at the time, you and your partner had a couple of kids. Life was really pretty full on. So how did it feel taking that leap? Was there kind of ever a moment where you were like, oh, what have I done? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely there was, particularly in those early days. I just kept trying to remind myself, you know, just do what you've always done. Do what you've always done. You've done it for every other brand, every other business. Just do what you know. But definitely there were moments where I I would toss and turn at night thinking, oh, my God, is this going to work? And the insecurities around the, some of the stuff my parents would say to me and, and even watching my parents battle as a kid, they're, they're things that I had to work through and dissolve some of those limiting beliefs. So, yeah, there was a lot of internal work I needed to do, particularly in those early days. And in terms of building up a customer base, you obviously had brands that you'd work for who were upset to see you leave, (laughs) devastated. Mm. So how did you kind of build up that client list when you began? Yes, so a lot of cold calling, a lot of networking. We did quite a bit of free work in the very beginning as well in order to be able to start building some case studies and to um, get some reputable brands to work with us. But my first client, my very first client, interestingly enough, and we still have them today, was Mercedes-Benz Melbourne, the dealership in Kingsway in South Melbourne. And I received word on the street from another media representative who said that they were in the market looking for another agency. So at this point, we had a website, we had a logo, we 
you know, we had our own office and we looked like the real deal. And I made the cold call to the marketing manager at the time and said, look, I understand that you're in the market looking for an agency. We'd love to come in and show you what we can do for you. And I remember being in that boardroom and the boardroom there is like Taj Mahal. You know, it's this stunning boardroom overlooking the city. And I had my slide up on the screen where it it came up to the team and I had an image that I took off Google Images of all these different circus acts. You know, there was a guy juggling, there was a guy on a tricycle and and I said to to the marketing manager at the time, this is the team. We have, uh, you know, access to an amazing pool of creatives and copywriters and content directors and, you know, you've got access to the best in the market, the best talent in market. And there was nobody. Like this was just people that I knew through my career. Just my network really was what I was selling. And I couldn't believe the news a couple of weeks later they'd actually appointed us and that was our very first client. And, you know, that's the whole story of fake it till you make it. We truly did. I knew that I had the ability to give the client the outcomes I were looking for, but the whole approaching them pitch process um, was, was, yeah, <laughs> very creative. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. <laughs> but, yes, to answer your question, initially to build up a business, yeah, it's a whole lot of grinding and calling and it's the real hustle, you know, it's that, unglamorous hustle that you don't get to see on Instagram, that you don't, people don't really, I suppose some people don't really reveal, but it was bloody tough. You know, we were pounding the pavement and bashing down doors every single day um, to, to get to get some sort of paid work through the door. Now, you mentioned that you knew that Mercedes were in the market for another, for a media agency. What about, but what about finding untapped opportunities like how do you because I'm sure that there's a lot of there's so many businesses that you you know you don't know what they're looking for and there there'd be a lot of cold calling that goes around you know people go and going around going have you, you know do you need these services or that sort of thing. how do you find those kind of lesser known opportunities that are a bit more more hidden networking definitely so as I mentioned earlier for me socializing and networking is something that I love to do so it's about your community. So some of the other ways that we grew the business and some of those less obvious untapped opportunities is things like strategic partnerships. So we have a few of those now in the agency and we always have where we plug ourselves into organisations that complement what we do but don't offer the exact same services. For example, we have a great affiliation with a leading brand agency that only focuses on building you know, the, the brand strategy, but they don't do any of the implementation or performance marketing. So it's a very complementary relationship where we share clients. That's one less obvious way is, is strategic partnerships. And also I think it's really important to invest in relationships. So I have a lot of great relationships with people in key areas of media organisations. So non-traditional media companies. Um, I I nurture those relationships. I invest in them. And then, of course, when they see an opportunity for us to support one of their clients, we get the call. So, yeah, cold calling, I think cold calling is extremely painful. 
I think there's more effective ways to grow businesses. I'm, you know, that that's what worked for us seven and a half years ago, um, but I don't believe it's the most effective way to build a business nowadays. So can I ask, was there a vision for three-phase marketing when you began and has it changed since then? The vision has always been the same where we really want to give our clients a competitive advantage in the ever-changing landscape. So when we first started our organisation, digital was more so in our market here in Australia, digital was on that cusp of finally everyone was starting to realise they need this in their business. So we, you know, immediately engaged a Google Ads expert a Facebook ads expert, um, content creators to work with our agency. And we were offering services back then, you know, seven and a half years ago that businesses were looking for. They didn't understand it. They knew they needed to be there, but they needed to, um, they needed that guidance. And that's never changed for us. You know, digital marketing is such a disruptive space. What actually worked in this space 12 months ago doesn't even work today. Like it's moving at such intense speeds that one of the things that we always maintain in our organisation is evolution and innovation. So if there's a new channel or a better way to do things, we learn it, we adopt it, we test it and we implement it as quickly as possible. That's probably one of the reasons why you've also received quite a number of accolades over the years for three-phase marketing and for yourself personally. So how important are the awards to you in the grand scheme of things? I always say this to clients, every time we, we're in a major pitch or I'm having a conversation about the awards, I'm amazed at how it's marketing. I mean, you know, we're a marketing firm. If we're not marketing ourselves correctly, I always say to my clients or to a prospect, I, don't engage a marketing agency that is not doing a good job at marketing themselves. It's like working with a builder whose house is half built or, you know, um, with a personal trainer who is not in premium condition. You need to emulate what it is that you believe in and what your services are So, with your own business. So the, the awards are really fascinating because they do create this perception of success. So I would see people at events and speak to people through my network who would say to me, oh, my God, Son, your business is doing so well and look at you guys go and they don't have any you know, access to our financial reports or um, our customer satisfaction or, you know, any of those critical business metrics. But on the surface, it looks like we're doing incredibly well. And that's the power of marketing. It is about perception and perception is reality. So the awards have been an amazing way to get media coverage, win new clients and even elevate our perception in the marketplace. So would you say that you know, as advice to other business owners, and we're talking, this could be businesses of all sizes, you, you, from from sole traders to, you know, to medium to larger, about really just putting your best foot forward when it comes to things like awards and, you know, when you see opportunities that you just need to grab onto them. Yep. Uh, the number one piece of advice I have for award applications is to engage a copywriter who has successfully written and applied and won awards for clients. I have a woman that does all of our award applications and her nickname in my business is called (laughs) Lucky Red Undies. So every time we engage her, (laughs) she's our Lucky Red Undies. So every time we engage her, we get nominated as a bare minimum because she has the ability to really dig and find something that we've done that that is not even obvious to me 
And she just has that innate ability to be able to craft a great story. And that's what award applications are about. I guarantee you, if you're running a business, um, if you're a B2B or it doesn't matter where you are in the journey, sometimes it just takes an external person to observe what you're doing to really see the gift because you're in it, right? So you're just grinding and executing every day and you you may not even see how fabulous things are for you until someone comes in and actually identifies that. So number one, I would get someone who has experience in award applications. Where you find that person, uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn's obviously a goldmine for great talent. Um, So there's that. And then the second part is that I would prepare, collate a list of all of the industry. First start with your industry, all of your industry awards. And then um, the second part of the list would be any business awards that have somewhat synergy with the business that you're running. Um, Create a list, pop it into a spreadsheet. I find that once you do one really good application, you can literally copy and paste them into the rest of the applications for the remainder of the year. Um, And it's a really inexpensive way to get your name out there. Like some of the applications are free. Like they don't charge you anything to apply. And the most we've paid is the AFR um, Innovation Award, which is around two and a half grand a year. But once you collate that list, you actually start to see how many opportunities exist out there and you don't even need to go for the ones that charge a fee. Mm, that is such brilliant advice. I think there's going to be people listening to this who are just like going, all right, you've just, Sonia, you've given, you've given, <laughs> given me a bit of like a fist pump moment. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I want to just sort of reflect a little bit on looking back from where you started. How do you feel about, you know, money and success today? So for me, the definition of success is really how I show up every day. The thing about money is that I didn't grow up with it and um, I've made it and I've lost it at times and I've made it and you can replenish money. You can find innovative ways to make more money. Money is really a mindset game. And I think a lot of us have limiting beliefs around that from things like how we've been raised, um, old sayings like money doesn't grow on trees. And there's a lot of programming there that needs to be undone for all of us, including myself ongoing, right? So the, the financial aspect of it is fantastic, but you have to love the process And, you know, success for me is how I show up and how I feel every single day. So when I have a problem or, you know, when an issue arises in the business, it's, to me, a successful person handles those things with grace, handles those things with a calm mind. And if you have the ability to master yourself, that to me is the reward in business and in life. Thank you so much, Sonia. That's some great advice there. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. So to find out more about Sonia, head to threephasemarketing.com.au and you'll learn all about Sonia Makich and her business. Thank you, Sonia. We've loved finding out about your first act. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of First Act. Bye. Bye.